everybody. Here we are. This is the Someone Like Me podcast season two live stream launch party. We are so excited to be here and we're so excited for all of you who are joining us. It's a bit of a drizzly day here in Nashville, Tennessee. And so it's nice to be kind of cozied up and we get to talk about all the things that are happening in this second season of Someone Like Me, the official In Slavery Tennessee podcast. So we have a few people here on screen and I'm gonna introduce them in a moment. But I do want to make sure you know that aside from talking about what's happening this season, we're answering questions as well. And there are two people on this screen who are going to be very well versed in answering most any question you have about sex trafficking here in the United States, specifically in Tennessee. So let's start by introducing who we see on screen. First, in the bottom left-hand corner, we have Gregory Byerline, who is the has been the long-standing producer of this show. He came up with the show with Derry Smith, who is the founder of In Slavery Tennessee. And so, Gregory, we're so excited to have you here. He's going to tell us a bit about a really special episode that we're going to have this season. And then on the upper left-hand corner, we have Marissa Brunell, who's the executive producer. Marissa, would you tell us what you do at In Slavery Tennessee on a day-to-day -day basis? Sure. I am one of the care coordinators here. We are not called case managers. It's a little too clinical for us. So I'm care coordinator, but we do a lot of case management. I am specifically the CSEM specialist, which is commercially sexually exploited minors. So I work with, with all of our minor clients. Um, I occasionally serve adult clients as well, but my main focus is on the youth. And I would say day to day, every day is a little different. Um, I go and visit my youth in the community. We might go out to lunch. We talk. Um, we I connect them to therapy, um, do a lot of mentoring and supporting, get them involved in activities in their community, basically just meet their needs where they're at, um, in addition to providing support for their families. Awesome. Thanks, Marissa. And Stacy, tell us about what you do at In Slavery. Yes. Um, well, currently my job is called Community Engagement Coordinator, and that's what I do. I help, um, I actually do some leadership development with local community groups to help them uh, know the best practices for engagement, help them do awareness events, fundraising, and just generally support um, those efforts. And I help the staff connect to parts of the community um, that wants to engage with this issue. Um, my background, I've, I've been, I'm a social worker and I um, have been a volunteer. I've been one in that role as a volunteer community group leader um, for well, almost a decade. I've been a volunteer here, but I've only been on staff for a few months. That's great. I've seen a lot and I've done a lot and I've, I love it. Yes. And between the two of you, I think you're a really fantastic team to help guide us through what this season looks like, because we have the direct service side. So we have someone who's working directly with the people who are being served by in slavery. And then we have someone who's working on the people who are helping the people who are serving um, survivors. So so grateful to have each of you. Before we go much further, we're going to start with a really fun exercise that we've actually been doing for each of our interviews. And it's based off of something Marissa does with her youth that she serves. So Marissa, tell us about what we're going to do. And then everybody watching, you're going to get to participate. And we're all going to kind of get to 
have a little icebreaker together. So go ahead, Marissa. Okay, I used to lead groups for minors. Right now, um, I'm not doing that anymore. We have somebody else that does that. Um, but one of the favorite things that I would do is just an icebreaker was I would bring in these just like silly or thought-provoking would-you-rather questions. So we decided to start every podcast asking our guests a few would-you-rather questions just to kind of break the ice, get to know them a little bit, lighten the mood maybe. Um, so I have a few for our team today. All right. All right. Are you guys ready? Yes. Okay. Would you rather give up vacations for your life or never be able to own a pet for the rest of your life? Uh-oh. I'm going to have to say pet. I'll just, I'll answer this one. You pet. would give up the pet. No, no. Sorry. No, okay. You not, choose the pet. I could pet. not give up the pet. Sure. I That's could hard. give up the vacations. I am a huge animal lover, dog lover, goats, and love, just goats. love animals so much. So. Do you have goats? No, no, but I'm hoping to own a few goats sometime in the near future. I hope that for you too. Gregory, what are you thinking? Oh, unmute yourself. There you are. I am unmuted, I thought. Um, I would give up vacations because I will not be without a dog. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, Stacy. All right, I'm going to break the pattern here because while I do love my little pixie boo, which is my Yorkie, Yorkie <laughs> oh, my boo, word. I know it's <laughs> very revealing. That's great. I do, um, but I'm also allergic to many animals. So, and I love to travel, and so I think I would. I'd have to give up a pet. Okay. I might have to go team. Give up vacations. Um, it dog. Our our dog is you know. It, she's like our child. So um, <laughs> I don't know. Dogs are people too. <laughs> dogs are people too. But I feel that, Stacy. I feel that. All right, Marissa, give us another okay. one. Would you rather be, would you rather have skin that changes color based on your emotions or have tattoos appear all over your body depicting what you did yesterday? <laughs> Gregor, I think Gregory's He's got a tattoo. I'm going to, I'm going to go with tattoos. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. More the merrier. Okay. I'm going to have to go with skin color changing, I think. I, I, it would, because it would be quite a, based on the emotions I go through throughout the day, it would be quite an array. It'd be quite a rainbow. So that could be fun. It could be very fun. I think I'd go for the colors too. I, I, I feel emotions, but I, I don't. I, I'm the opposite of you, Leslie. So I think my, my color would probably be pretty, like, stable most of the time. <laughs> the same. It'd be the same a lot. Yeah. Okay, Stacey. That is, this is very tough. Um, I, I almost would like both. <laughs> but um, if I have to pick, I'm going to go with the colors, um, too. I think that, that's a very interesting question, Marissa. <clears throat> <laughs> do you want to do one more? Yeah, let's do one more. Okay. Would you rather be able to take back anything that you say or hear any conversation that's about you? Oh, no. I would read, there are a lot of things I would like to take back that I say. 
Same. I don't want to hear conversations. No, I, I don't either. <laughs> no, yeah, I don't need that. Does, but then I really don't. Okay, so we're all agreed. <laughs> <laughs> well, Marissa, this is great, and I think it's a. It, I mean, it's a bit of a silly exercise that we're doing here, but in your work with survivors and with and with youth who are, you know, vulnerable and who are meeting new people and in new experiences, I'm sure this is a really great exercise just to get just to get everybody talking, just to get some walls broken down. Absolutely. The sillier, the better with them usually. Right. Yeah. Well, the sillier, the better in general is a great idea. So um, one person who is not on this screen, it usually is when we do these live streams, is Derry Smith. And if you've been paying attention to this podcast, you know that Derry Smith founded In Slavery, Tennessee. Uh, she was executive producer on the first season. And on February 23rd, she retired. Um, a well-deserved retirement. So she is now resting. She might even be on this stream as far as we know. I know that she's popped up and asked a couple questions ahead of time. And so we are so grateful for her. And uh, we actually launched an episode on the day of her retirement episode 14 it's kind of a bonus in between seasons dairy herself actually produced this episode told stories about the genesis of in slavery tennessee she even had people who were involved in the beginning share things about their time within slavery share stories so it's this beautiful quilted um, episode that our engineer Claire put together with Gregory and our team and Derry herself was kind of at the head of it so if you listen to it you can go to inslaverytn.org the episode is on the website and it's streaming now on all podcast platforms and speaking of Derry even though she's not with us in person, she's with us in spirit because we have these mugs. Yes, three of us have these mugs. Gregory, we with COVID, we couldn't get it to Gregory. But, um, I will he, get mine tomorrow. There you go. Um, <laughs> and so, Marissa, you actually have the painting that this mug came from, right? Okay, so this was a painting that was given to Derry, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, I believe it was given to Derry from our very first client, Hmm. I'm sure she'll correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure it was our very first client um, that Derry had worked with and it was a minor client. She painted this and told Derry, when I came here, my heart was in a million pieces and you helped stitch it back together. So this is something we used. Um, we have, you know, we have our mugs and it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a great picture of what we strive to do for clients. Absolutely. And it's a great, um, it's a great reminder that in all things, uh, you know, the first the first episode of this season, we're talking about trauma informed care. And it's a really fantastic reminder of that in all things that in slavery is doing, coming at it from a trauma informed stance and, and position, including this podcast. And so when we set about to plan this second season and, and with the idea that the whole reason this show exists is to share survivor stories, to give them a voice, to be able to give them a platform so they can share their story the way they want to without fearing that it's going to be manipulated or misconstrued. And so really that that painting and these it's a, it's a beautiful example of what it is that in slavery Tennessee does. Um, and we're actually going to give away one of these mugs. So if you are watching and you ask questions, um, our behind the scenes um, person. Ooh, yeah, look at that wonderful ticker on the bottom. 
Um, well, you'll be contacted directly after the live stream by Caitlin, who is running the scenes behind um, all of this. She's fantastic. She's communications for In Slavery Tennessee. So ask questions. And then at the end of all of this, you might just get a mug. It's very exciting. Um, so this show, like we said, was started with the purpose of telling survivor stories. And this new season, we're going to hear survivor stories in a lot of different ways. So Marissa and Stacy put this entire season together, kind of planned it on the front end for us. Could each of you kind of walk us through what the arc of this season looks like? Um, sure. At the, the very first episode, we are talking about trauma-informed care with, with Stacy, myself, our director of um, services, Kelsey Mize, and Caitlin Reed. We talk about what trauma-informed care is and why we are incorporating survivors in a different way this season. We're not having as many survivors on, but their voices are going to be carried throughout the season um, in lots of different ways. We do have, we do have a few survivors um, on this season and we're, we're building up. We have, we do have Centoya Brown in the middle of the season as a survivor. And the first half of the episodes leading up to that interview are dealing with youth vulnerabilities. So we're interviewing with um, Stacia Freeman from Epic Girl um, covering the juvenile justice system for minors because the majority of our clients have come through the juvenile justice system. Um, we are also talking to Bethany Christian Services. They are a foster agency. We, we talk a lot about foster care and how um, that is a real common denominator between the victims that we serve. So we, we're definitely covering that youth aspect leading up to Centoya. And then after that, Stacy can tell you what the second part of our season looks like. Yeah. Some of the things that I think are very important to the work that we do um, are the partners. It really is one of the things that we, these collaborative relationships that we've built with um, particularly law enforcement and the, in the judicial system to uh, undergird the work that we do because the, you know, and this spread this trauma-informed model um, and share that together. And so uh, we'll be talking with uh, Judge Escobar with the Human Trafficking Court um, here in Nashville and uh, Assistant District Attorney Sarah Wolfson, who uh, who uh, does some, some programs within the court system that we work with together um, so that survivors have uh, this, this more of a, a supportive system within the judicial system, which is yeah. really wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, we're also talking with uh, members of the TBI who started the first human trafficking unit here in Tennessee. Our current CEO, Margie Quinn, is the woman who actually did that. And so she'll be talking about the history of how, um, how that came about, some of the research that was done to open our eyes to what was happening in Tennessee um, with human trafficking, and then how we addressed it, and how, particularly how law enforcement changed their attitudes. I mean, it's very poignant, some of the things that occurred. and. So we're talking to TBI agent uh, Jason Wilkerson about some of the things he experienced in the field. And also um, we're taking it down to the local level, talking with Detective Adrian Breedlove of um, Brentwood, who, um, who has some experiences of his own and how he addresses it in that particular community and beyond. Mm -hmm. well, let's see. Oh, um, we are curating a few survivor stories. We're not... Um, we're, we're doing dramatizations, I guess. Uh, they're just voiceovers using the survivor's story, but allowing an actor to come in mm -hmm. and 
and tell that story because it can be it can be uh, re-traumatizing to the survivor. And it's a whole process we go go through to help sure make ensure that the survivor has um, has what she needs. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, she goes this. let's talk about that for a second. Actually, this is going to be oh, a sure. sneak peek kind of, of of episode one when we do a deep dive into trauma informed care. There are there are a number of things that you are looking for when you want a survivor to sit for an interview. Um, there are just, you kind of have policies for what does that survivor need to have done to prepare? What sorts of care have they gotten so far? Are they, are they ready to share their story? And this was part of Derry's vision for this show was that a lot of times survivors will be asked to share on the news, share on podcasts, share on things. And, and, and they'll agree to it. And then the questions that are asked are re-traumatizing, do bring up really difficult things that maybe they weren't ready to address yet. Or maybe they get through the interview and they realize, I don't know that I want that to be public, but the outlet runs with it anyway. So we do a very intentional thing with making sure, and again, this is a bit of a spoiler alert for the first episode, but we, we talk about the number of things that we go through to make sure a survivor is ready to share their story. And so if, if there aren't survivors that are ready for that just yet, then we may not be able to have a survivor sit down for an interview. However, you are often getting emails and um, correspondence from people who are you're working with directly that are willing for someone else to share something they've written, right? And and ways that in slavery has helped them that can help us better understand the issue. And so that's that's one thing that is going to be really important this season. And the other side to this podcast, the purpose of it is to educate people on the issue of human trafficking. So it is empowering survivors, but then it's also education. And this season is going to do a really deep dive into a number of pretty things that look really complicated that contribute to this issue and getting a really good picture of what it looks like from youth vulnerability to, um, you know, talking about adult issues and the court system and how there are ways that the court is doing things to address trafficking. So you all have done a really wonderful job of that. Gregory, you have an episode um, that you've done this season that I'm really excited about because last year we talked to someone who volunteered at a school that um, it's called John's school, but it's sex buyers go and they can have a number of things. Um, they sit through some sessions during the day to understand kind of the issue a little better. So we interviewed a volunteer for that school, but we actually have a sex buyer this season who came yes. on to talk. You want to you want to talk about that first? Yeah, second? that was a uh, really remarkable conversation. I'm deeply grateful for his honesty and his candor and his transparency. Um, he answered everything that I asked. He shared very openly and um, Marissa and Stacy even submitted some questions from survivors that they wanted to know Mm -hmm. the answers to from a sex buyer. And uh, when we got to that section, he graciously and joyously answered every question. Um, and I hope that those answers will uh, provide continued healing for the survivors. It, it may not 
fully explain it. It certainly won't justify it, but maybe it will be another step for them uh, in their healing to hear what was going on literally from the John's perspective, from a, um, from a, from a buyer. Yeah. And that's yeah, it another was a fascinating way. conversation. Yeah. And that's another way the survivor voice is being brought into this season. Small things like that are actually pretty big in allowing survivors to use their voice in a way that's not just my literal voice telling my story, but asking a question of someone uh, and getting an answer. I mean, that's yes. I when I was I asked a few survivors and one of them, a minor, I actually told her what was going on. And I said, Did, would you want to ask a question? And she said, wow that guy's really brave to do that. Hmm. I was he's, so surprised. he's a remarkable human. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's really important um, because of our mission here in slavery. I mean, certainly a, a huge part of our resources and what we do is for survivor care, but it's also strategically confronting slavery here in Tennessee. And if we don't address the issue of demand directly, then we are missing a huge piece of huge solving piece. this issue. So yes. I'm so happy we're we're delving in there. It's not easy. It's uncomfortable, but it's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember um, after listening to uh, the Satoya, Centoya Brown Long's episode that you guys recorded, um, yes. when I heard of her clemency and there was some discussion on you know, no, local news article uh, comment sections, which, Lord, you should never read those, but I did one day. And there were a lot of people – on the side of the John They're like, well, what about him and his family? I'm like, you know, she was a child. Mm-hmm. Why don't we talk about what this grown man is doing in a hotel room with a minor? Why don't we talk about that first? Because if that hadn't happened, then we wouldn't even be discussing Centoya's clemency. Mm-hmm. So there's a definite cause and effect that uh, the, the demand section um, hopefully we can address and, and, and turn the tide, you know, if we can turn that spigot of demand off, then yeah, that's it. Boom. Right. Well, and that's, um, that's actually a theme that's come up a couple times in interviews. Um, we were doing interviews in the months leading up to, to now. And one of the themes has been, there's the idea of going into the issue, stopping it from happening, stopping demand, but there's also prevention on the side of a buyer, um, mm-hmm. thinking about young boys who also have traumas that will lead to or who have um, different generational philosophies that are that are contributing to the issue. And so that's a thing that's come up several times. How do we work with our young men and our, our boys as they're growing up to educate and to empower them to make good choices um, for everyone to to stop demand. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, again, if you have any questions uh, for us, now's the time to ask them. You can ask about how we go about, 
the season, how we go about interviews. You can ask about different topics. You can ask about general um, human trafficking issues as it relates to the United States. Um, so if you have them, go ahead and ask them. Um, I did want to make sure we talk about something that In Slavery is doing uh, called the No Show Ball. So we'll have some more information about that in a bit. But let's get to this question from Mary Beth. Was there anything that came up this season while you were recording that you were surprised to hear or learn? Fabulous question. Mm, yes. Um, Marissa and Stacy, why don't you two start? Was there anything that you were surprised to learn? Um, I'd love to hear that. I need to think about that for a second. Yeah. I did not I did not sit in on every recording. That's true. Only about half of them. I know we sort of tag teamed a little bit on the recordings and um I do remember something though that I I'd forgotten. Um there there's some there's some really good research um that was brought um that the TBI TBI, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, uh conducted early on in this um in, in when we began addressing human trafficking here in Tennessee directly, locally. And I didn't realize that our CEO, uh, Margie, was a key, it was a key person in developing that research. And um, it really set the stage for some, for building the laws and, and addressing this uh, directly. And I, I, I just forgot um, <laughs> who, I mean, I, I, I read the research and I was like, oh, wow, you did that. Oh, that's great. I, it's been so instrumental. Yeah. So that was a nice, a nice moment. Yeah. I thought of something in, <clears throat> in the Centoya Brown long interview. Um, she talked about what it looked like growing up for her. Um, mm -hmm. Most people focus on her story. We, we did have her tell her story a little bit, um, but we wanted to focus on what would she tell girls her age and where did she come from? What happened to her that led up to the crime that was committed and her ending up in, in, in prison. And she was actually from a good family. She was raised in a good family. And there was, there were definitely some vulnerability vulnerabilities. Um, but it, it, she had a different backstory than I would have imagined. So hearing that just straight from her was very interesting. And it, it sounds like a lot of, a lot of the kids that we live with, she actually had less vulnerability to some of the, than, mm. than a lot of the kids that we, we live with. Um, it doesn't matter what they look like though. I mean, a vulnerable youth is a vulnerable youth and predators can sniff them out real quick. So um, that was interesting to me. And then we also interviewed a survivor named Trish and um, her story was just very different than some of the other stories that I had heard. You have to tune in, but she talked a lot about her own children mm. um, and that story. And it was really enlightening to hear her perspective on um, coming out of coming out of being trafficked and then um, and then dealing with children who are having a lot of similar issues. So um, yeah. you have to check that one out. That's a great that was a great story with Treasury. I had another yeah. thought too. The two tough guy cop type law enforcement guys. Yeah. Um, I just have to say it was beautiful to see how vulnerable oh, they yeah. made themselves in these interviews. Mm -hmm. I mean, we saw this um, the soft tender side and and the moments of reckoning from them for them to realize um, some of the shifts in law enforcement and how they've been culpable and for them to admit and talk about how they're moving forward. And I, I love that we're hearing uh, more male voices 
And yeah. I hope that's going to be a trend that we can continue because we need everyone to, to be on board with um, supporting this issue if we're going to solve it. Yeah. Agreed. Gregory, did you have one? I have one, but uh, if you have uh, an answer for Mary Beth. Um, there, there was something in particular, and uh, I'd like to not spoil the uh, yeah. interview with a sex buyer episode. Yeah. Um, I, I would just like to let that one speak for itself. But it's something in there. Yes. Um, yes. And yeah. well, and, and bridging the gap from um, the demand situation to prevention, like Marissa said, um, again, if we can turn off the spigot of, de of demand, that right there is a cornerstone of prevention. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. that, that's huge. This is it, it's so important. And I'm grateful to be a part of this to yeah. turn that tide. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you the thing that surprised me and that I loved hearing was uh well, each episode there was a surprise, but there was a, another thing that came up a lot almost in every episode, which was that um, victims of human trafficking do not see themselves as victims most of the time. Um, and that was something that came up early in interviews and, and then came up often. And it's just so helpful to know that. Um, but case in point, Centoya herself, when she was in prison, it was an in-slavery Tennessee publicity campaign that helped her realize her reality. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I really loved hearing this story. It was um, called What is 13, right? That was the title. Of it. Yeah. And, it, and it was community leaders. So the mayor, the governor talking about sex trafficking and what it looks like. And she tells a story of being um, sitting there um, incarcerated. And all of a sudden she goes, wait, these are these are leaders talking about a story that looks like mine. That sounds yeah. like someone like me, you know? Yeah. So, um, she, so the campaign, what is 13? You were supposed to get a picture of when you were 13 years old. And so all the city leaders and different community leaders got this picture and they showed a picture of themselves and said, what was life? They were supposed to imagine what was life like for you when you were 13? What did it look like? Yeah. And yeah. it was comparing and contrasting what it's like for someone who's vulnerable in human trafficking. Yes. Or it reminds us all that when we're 13, we're all pretty vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and remind everyone what the significance of the number 13 is or the age 13. It, it, it can vary, I would say now, based more like factually. Be, the average age of entry into trafficking was 13 at that time. Now it's, it's about between 12 to 14. But that, that's the significance of 13. Yeah. yeah, and um, similar to what we discussed in the demand issue in season one, um, 13 is an average, mm -hmm. which means there is younger. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So something to think about there, too. Right. Um, next question. How do you address those who don't see themselves as victims? That's great. Marissa, why don't you talk yeah. about this? Yeah, n pretty much none of the minors see themselves as victims. Sometimes the adults do because they've They've addressed it a couple of times before coming to us. Um, but I think that you educate, you teach. We do some prevention work. Um, we have some curriculum that teaches them about exploitation. So um, we might show them that and work through that curriculum with them. And then a few months down the line, they might be like, you know what, that 
that happened to me and come to terms with that. I would say uh, for, for a lot of the youth, I mean, I'll be working with them for maybe a year and then they may say, yeah, okay, that did happen to me. But we don't push them to tell their story. They're usually referred to us from law enforcement or DCS, so we do know the background and that they're they qualify to get services from us. Um, but most of the most of the youth disagree. They're like, "Why am I here? I wasn't mm-hmm. trafficked." Um, so we try to teach them what the definition of being trafficked is, and um, just stand by them, encourage them, love love them, support them, and teach them. You know teach them how people do prey upon them and use them and manipulate them. And more often than not, they will get to a place where, where they do see themselves as, I don't want to even say victim, but they would see that themselves as, you know, this is something that happened to them. Yeah. So we usually, we, we call the people that we work with survivors. Um, nobody wants to, you know, carry around victim, the victim label usually, um, so, yeah, it just takes yeah. a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you're right. The process is exactly what it is. It takes a minute to open your eyes to all the trauma. I mean, it's trauma. And um, what some of the things that we do to educate. I mean, and by the way, trafficking isn't often the first thing that presents in um, when we identify people um, who are who are vulnerable and have had these experiences. Um, sometimes it's theft. Sometimes it's drugs. Sometimes it's incarceration. And so these are some of the places that we're trying to um, trying to address this. And, and we're actually developing now a uh, Leslie, I know you're involved with developing the um, the modules for inside the prison systems mm-hmm. that will help people. Um, some are especially for people, for women in particular in prison mm-hmm. so that they can uh, learn about what it looks like to be trafficked. And then instead of. Um, and so when when as they're progressing in their in their incarceration, we can begin to provide services while they're there, and then further when they when they leave. So we're really trying to do our best to help um, identify as soon as we can, so that um, and prevent prevention is the best. But um, it does take time, and it's a process, even for just us average people out there trying to understand this this big complex issue. Um, I, I think we see trafficking more than we we recognize until our eyes are opened. Absolutely. One more thing I would just chime in and say, um, like just speaking for the cl- on the client side, um, they need to feel safe. So we always try to establish um, just safety for them. Uh, safety plans, um, we address, We like I'll just speak for the minor clients, you know, they need to be in a safe place physically. They need to have, you know, their health needs met. They need to, you know, um, feel, uh, have their their addiction issues addressed. There's so many levels. And maybe after they get get sober, they're in a safe and, you know, loving environment again. Um, Their mental health needs are being addressed as well. You know, there's all these layers. And once, once those are kind of a little bit more stable, then then the trafficking might be addressed at that point. Yeah. I think another thing that's come up a couple of times that has contributed to the idea of people not recognizing that in themselves is the perpetuation of unhelpful um, imagery and language around sex trafficking. So the idea of kidnapping, uh, being chained up in a basement or, you know, 
this sort of missing for 10 years and then you've been taken all over the country. Those sorts of things that are truly extraordinary and standalone examples of things that aren't happening um, on a on a wide scale actually hinder um, a lot of trafficking survivors from recognizing that as a part of their story because they didn't, they weren't kidnapped, you know? Absolutely. They're like, my life doesn't look like the movie Taken. Yeah, right, right. Absolutely. It's very helpful. Thank you, Linda. Um, Mary Beth, not to get ahead of ourselves, but will there be a season three? <laughs> we certainly hope so. Uh, I, I think, you know, one thing that is remarkable, and I, I think we're all just sick of the word COVID, so I don't want to say it very much, but the last year, really, for all of us, every single one of us watching on this stream has been very difficult. And we have all had to readjust things that we had no preparation for. And this podcast still went on. The first season still went on. I mean, what we are at one year since um, the pandemic was declared and we released our season March of last year, our first season. So I just want to thank the production team for continuing on. I mean, last year we were doing some Zoom interviews with survivors that um, we had to kind of get some resources to so we could talk to them. It's pretty extraordinary. And so I'm hopeful that as some things start to turn, that we can we can absolutely talk about a season three um, because we've done it. We've done two seasons of this show in a very difficult time. So I'm, I'm hopeful for that. And, and I, I know that it affects how you're able to serve survivors mm -hmm. uh, that you're working with. And so I'm also hopeful that this a bit of a change of fresh wind might allow for more survivors to come under your care and some more um, rehabilitation to happen. So Fingers we have crossed. ideas. We do have ideas for the third season. So good. Yes. Yes. Well, everyone, thank you so much for watching and tuning in. Um, I do have one more thing I want to tell you about that in slavery, Tennessee is doing that. You can learn more about this issue and get a delicious, delicious brunch. It's called the no show ball. Uh, it's Saturday, April 24th at 10 a.m. And the food, so what happens is you, you sign up, you get a ticket and you sign up for food that will come to your house. The food is provided by Thistle Farms, which is the collaborative partner within Slavery Tennessee. They have a cafe that employs survivors. So it uh, it's a really wonderful um, partnership here. And so when you sign up for the no-show ball, you will get a meal from Thistle Farms. And then there will be a special edition of Human Trafficking at Home which is a um, online resource that In Slavery Tennessee has established. And this is going to be talking about advocacy. So on your screen right now, you see the URL to get your tickets. That's going to be a really neat event. And you guys do that every year, don't you? Yeah, wonderful. We've been doing it every year, but this is the first time we have um, built in a, an education or a, a video oh, piece to it. So it'll be a nice, a nice new, fresh thing to do with it. Yeah. yeah. Well, everyone. Thistle Far Farms food is amazing also. Yeah. 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 Great partnership with a great organization. Yeah. Well, before we go, um, we have also asked each of our guests to share their why. Uh, Stacy, I, I would love for you to ask this question because you 
you came up with this idea. And so we kind of, we, we book in the conversations with would you rathers, and then we end with this question of all of our guests. So Stacy, would you ask this question and then each of us can respond? Yeah. So the people that we've um, <clears throat> been interviewing, they've engaged this so well. And so I, I asked them, was there a moment of light or understanding where it just changed your world uh, related to human trafficking and, and allowed you to move differently in the world from that moment forward or from a series of moments. And it's, it's been a wonderfully, um, mm-hmm. it's been a wonderful experience hearing mm-hmm. how they changed and what, what it was that changed them. So Stacy, you go first. Cause I actually haven't heard you answer this question <laughs> and I'm interested. Well, I mean, for me, it's kind of a series of things. Um, I'll set the stage a little bit. I mean, human trafficking, the first human trafficking law in the nation was passed in 2000, um, federal law. And so it's not been really that long since we've been addressing and calling it human trafficking. And even back then, uh, I think most people saw it as a foreign issue, you know, that maybe come into the United States different ways, but they didn't really see it as a domestic issue in general in culture. Um, And my moment came when there was this, uh, uh, let's see, I think it was Dateline NBC. They had a series called To Catch a Predator. And this was back, the series was from like 2004 to 2007. And um, I'm a social worker, right? So I, I'm aware of some social issues, but this one floored me. I was incredulous. I said, I, and what happened was the reporter worked with um, a law enforcement agency and they set up these stings where uh, young girls were put, you know, people, they, these men would think they were going to make a, a date with a young girl to have sex. And um, that's that's disturbing enough. But the fact that man after man after man after man came in of all, all ages, all races, races, all socioeconomic class, they would just walk in expecting this this situation. And I, I just... It, I, I just didn't think that. I didn't think like that before. And I didn't call, I don't think they called it trafficking or anything related to trafficking back then, but that was my first introduction into this dynamic occurring in our society. And um, uh, so after that, I, I started piecing it together when I heard about in, International Justice Mission, which is an international mm-hmm. trafficking organization. And I thought, well, that's, something feels familiar. I finally went to, um, uh, I saw a film called Girl Rising. It was a um, it was a film that, that was screened at Belmont University. And Karen Karpinski, who mm-hmm. was one of the first people here at Enslavery Tennessee, was there talking about the local organization beginning to do this work. And, and she's I remember, featured in that episode 14 with Derry. She is. She's yes. featured um, in that bonus episode. It's a beautiful story. She says beautiful things, and she's a beautiful person, so not, not too far of a stretch at all. But um, anyway, she... I remember going up to her after that and said, I'm so glad you're here. I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting to do something and I couldn't figure out how to do it. And that's my journey, how I began 2012. Wow. Wow. Cool. Uh, Gregory, you go next. Um, I would say that my light started uh, a little over over 11 years ago when my first daughter was born. Um, She drastically changed my life and my perspective. Uh, A few years later, uh, daughter number two came along. And then a couple years later, some son number one. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, as a father of now two daughters, 
um, and and also a son, um, image bearers, and uh, my the, my family name carry honors. Um, I wanted to do something to ding the universe and turn it just a little bit, even if it's a small bit, because over time it will it will make a big difference. But I want to protect my daughters. I want to make a better world for my daughters to grow up in. And I also want to um, cut off whatever I may pass from this father to my son and, and raise a young man who sees women that are uh, as valuable uh, people. I, I affectionately refer to women as creatures because they're, they're part of creation. Um, I, and I, but not to objectify them, but to just in, encapsulate them into this great work that the creator has made. And that this is that they're not someone that we as men control or have a right to. Um, they're not property. They're they're valuable. They're co-laborers. They're they're equals. Um, so it's kind of a twofold thing, uh, just from a fatherhood and parental perspective. That's great. Marissa? Well, Stacey and I were talking about this earlier. I don't know if there is like one moment of light, but I will say uh, in my former life, several years ago, I had a completely different career. I was an event coordinator and I was just like very burnt out and feeling like there was no purpose in this. And I really have always been a very empathetic person wanting to help. And I started to volunteer with kids that had been placed in DCS custody and put at a facility they had nowhere to go. Like no, they were waiting to be reunified with their family or to be placed in foster care. And so I want, I started to volunteer there and they said, no one ever wants to volunteer with the teens. They all want to volunteer with the little kids. <clears throat> and I was like, okay, I'll volunteer with the teen girls. Okay. And I was literally like the only one that would go and volunteer with these teens. And I started building up relationships with these kids and just hearing about their backstories and just, so much trauma and the broken homes and my eyes are really opened and they gravitated towards me and I just kept going and kept going. And, um, I, at the same time, I remember reading an article written by a survivor from Cambodia and she was talking about, um, the sex trade in Cambodia and the, ch the children that were being trafficked there. And I was just horrified by that. Like I was having dreams about it, just couldn't stop thinking about it. And I started to just dive in and do a lot of research on human trafficking. And that's when I learned like this happens in our country mm -hmm. and, and it happens to most of the kids were like the kids that I was volunteering with. So I, I saw there was this intersect and I'm like, oh my goodness, how many of these girls may have been affected by this or it could possibly pre be prevented if they someone would talk to them um, about this and educate them. So that, that intersect of the volunteering and learning, learning about the issue that was domestic um, just sparked a fire in me and I quit or, well, I didn't quit. I changed careers at that point, basically. <laughs> and I moved um, and I started volunteering with a, another agency in Washington, D.C. and started volunteering, helping with minors there and manning their 40-hour hotline and just built up experience for quite some time before ending up in this position. But um, 
it was a it was a unique it was a unique journey and just educating myself and having that spark for youth i guess yeah for me and just the other day we were talking about this is uh when i was asked to be a part of this project i immediately knew that i i wanted to but i also knew that i didn't know as much about it as i could or I knew it was probably much bigger than I realized. And so I kind of went into it just like open-handed and I'd like to, I want to learn about it, you know, and, and do the best I can to understand this issue. I don't know that I necessarily had taken in my head, you know, the movie, but I, I knew that there was more to the issue than I perhaps, perhaps understood. And we had a day of survivor interviews and hearing back to back stories of, these women that when they were my, you know, when they were little, I would have gone to school with them and I, and they, they would have been my classmates and I wouldn't have had any idea. Not to say that, you know, children that young need to be, you know, fighting the issue or need to be aware, but it, it just, it, it made me realize this is, these are not extraordinary kidnapping events. These are everyday people that I probably spent years with growing up and I would have no idea what they went through at home or outside of school or the, the kids that suddenly weren't going to school and just suddenly they aren't in classes anymore. That could have been a part of their story. And I think that's really where I, where it clicked for me in terms of what this looks like and, and how do we need to be talking about it and how do we educate people to be involved and to be aware people who have children in school with these children? What sorts of things can you be looking for? What do you need to be aware of as you're going to events with your kids? Um, that was, I think that was kind of my moment. The first round of survivor interviews really kind of, you know, for any of us, for any situation, when you meet people who have gone through something, it becomes your issue. It becomes a human issue and it humanizes the issue and so I was I have been incredibly grateful for this opportunity to learn more and to to do work with you all. So everyone, thank you so much for being on this on this live stream. We launched the second season of Someone Like Me on March 26th. So you have some time to go listen to the first season, get caught up and listen to the episode number 14, Derry Smith, her legacy episodes. You can learn how this entire organization came to be. And thank you for joining us today. We're so grateful and get your tickets for the no show ball. That's gonna be an incredible event. So everyone we will see you March 26th for episode one. Have a good Friday. <laughs>